Content warning. This episode contains discussions which include themes of abuse and severe trauma. If these topics are triggering to you, please take caution when listening to this episode. Enjoy the show. Ben, before we get started, what I, I got a question. What's the weather like for you over there? Oh, it was pretty clear today. I mean, uh, a little yeah, cloudy like, now. I'm not sure, yeah, like we've got clear skies over here. Um, I I was I was just wondering. Oh shit! Hmm? Oh fuck! Um, What's up? I think that's I think that's fish. I think it's raining fish over here. What? Um, um. Oh shit! Yeah. Oh, it's a downpour <laughs> of fish. <laughs> this is pretty funny. Oh, oh, oh shit! What? For the listeners, you... I just got crushed by a fridge. Yeah, it was pretty scary. Uh... Okay, okay. Welcome to Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman. <laughs> this is the stupidest bit I've ever opened one of these with. This is the st- this is stupider than the Nathan for You intro bit that I. D- <laughs> this is stupid. I. D- it this doesn't work in an audio medium, but I will do it anyway. <laughs> Look, if this if this podcast is going to have any sort of like thing to set it apart from anything, it's visual humor that no one will get. <laughs> right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's what you come here for. You come here for the visual gags. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> what I listen to all podcasts for, but especially this one. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I am joined by one of my dear friends ben lash everybody yes hello hello yep i'm ben we went to school together jackson and i so i i he i'm yes my you're (laughs) my my son my baby boy (laughs) oh um (laughs) um so yeah um welcome everyone this is the first episode that will be released after i did so much in May. I I did not. Well, you know, I it was a lot of work. I were tech, we are recording this in May in the throngs of X month. But you know, I you know, it's good to be back to bi-weekly episodes. <laughs> it's good to not have to like edit every weekend, but I love it. I love it. It was great. I love talking about the X-Men and I will only ever devote a month to that every year for the rest of my life. This is a never ending Sisyphean task. Oh God. But we're not here about, we're not here for that anymore. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, so yeah, this is our first episode back after we took a break and, uh, we are doing a new format. Um, this is something I've, tentatively been titling a uh the retrospective series where um 
it will be multi-episode structures of um, specific runs of comics done by a specific creator-artist pairing. I was thinking about a lot of the stuff that I wanted to cover, and I was like, oh, oh, that's too long for one episode. Like, this multi-year storyline cannot be covered in about two hours. And so I was like, oh, what we'll do is we'll split it up, we'll split these up into parts and do, like, one a year and just keep going, and with the same guest every time. And uh, we couldn't, I couldn't have thought of a better one to start off with. We are talking about Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. Um, I have credits here. Um, written by Grant Morrison, art by Richard Case, John Nyberg, Doug Braithwaite, Scott Hanna, Carlos Garzon, uh, colors by Daniel Vozo and Michelle Wolfman, and letters by John Workman. Um, yes, this is the first part of their epic run throughout the 90s on Doom Patrol. And uh, I'm going to kick it over to Ben for a second. Um, hi, Ben. We didn't really introduce you. Um, you can tell us a bit more about like your history with comics and stuff and just y where you were at coming into Doom Patrol specifically today. Sure. Okay, yeah. So, um, so yeah, pretty much it's been... I really... I I've always liked comic books. I mean, I've always wished I read them more. Um, I grew up with my, I mean, the Tick comics were like what my dad had around the house all the time. Um, so that's what I started reading, but it's been like years and years since I've read any of those. So, uh, but actually Jackson, um, showed me a really cool comic book store in Milwaukee. Um, and I visited there, uh, well, the first time was with Jackson, you know, but, um, after that I went a couple times on my own and then brought a couple friends once or twice. And yeah, the collection is kind of slowly growing. Uh, but this is the first time I spent in a while just sitting down and actually just like, okay, I want to read this. I'm going to read this. Um, and the Doom Patrol, like, I I saw, like, the first season of the TV show and loved it. Uh, but I'm like, you know, it's, I wish I knew more about, you know, all these characters and the awesome world that they're in. So this has been just a really cool process for me. I I think, like, the, the TV show borrows so much from the Grant Morrison run, I think. Um, literally, I I cannot watch new TV because I am a weirdo who only watches the same like six shows over and over again but <laughs> but i've seen the first episode the first season of doom patrol and there are so many individual episodes and storylines that borrow from the morrison run and it's well like there is an entire episode devoted to something that happens over like two issues in this and and we'll, we'll get we'll get to all of that but you know, I, again, it's one of those things where I was sort of in the same boat of, like, the TV show's coming out, but, and I, and I call myself a fan of all of Grant Morrison's work, but up until, like, last year, I hadn't read any of their Doom Patrol run, and I was like, oh, shit, I, it's one of those, like, culturally significant comic runs, especially for DC, where I, I was like, oh, I should probably do my due diligence as a fan and read this yeah no that's that's honestly how a lot of how i'm feeling too i mean i i'm pretty admittedly i'm pretty behind on a lot of the like big really pivotal important comics out there uh recently uh, besides doom patrol i've been reading swamp thing which has been really really good i've loved loved, yes. loved that um, yes but, stay yeah. tuned for the halloween episode everyone <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my god! I had to plug an episode we have not recorded yet. Solid. Oh my gosh, love that. But but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just the more I read this and like see both references to other things in the DC universe and just how much this, how awesome it is, just standing totally alone. Like it's, I don't know. I'm kind of mad at myself. I didn't read it sooner. (laughs) That's especially with like, okay, quick tangent, everyone. You're probably tired of these, but. Um, that's what I think a lot of, like, some of these early Vertigo series, because this was published under DC's Vertigo imprint, which was, like, same as, like, Swamp Thing and Sandman and Hellblazer. All of these, like, more experimental runs and comics with lesser-known characters from the DC universe that also technically, that, like, felt that they were in their own universe. Where, where like, you can read Sandman or this and be like, oh, this is its own story in its own universe, but then it'll make references to members of the Justice League or popular DC characters will show up in these stories. And you're like, oh, this is how you do a shared universe. This is how you... This is how you make things seem so vast and connected while still allowing the experimentation of stories like this to happen. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I loved the moment when Superman just kind of popped in and was like, what's going on here? And that was about it. That like Superman didn't do anything Superman. And she was just like, what's happening? What? Oh, doom patrol, whatever. Like that, <laughs> that was kind of it. And I love that. Yeah. Um, so let's sort of like die. We're, this is going to be a very free form episode. We're not going to, mm-hmm do a lot of summaries and synopses and tell you exactly what's going on. It's just going to be a freeform discussion about this part of Morrison's run. So, and we're going to just talk about everything that happens in part one of three. Um, We are using the handy dandy um, paperback complete collection editions that have been published recently. Um, This, I believe this first one, I believe covers up to from Doom Patrol issue 19 to uh, 34, which basically runs from like 1989 to middle of 1990. Now, um, let's do some let's do some background information. So the Doom Patrol were created in 1963 by a man named Arnold Drake, and they were like a weirder, lesser known Silver Age DC team. And it featured a lot of characters that are sent front and center here in the Morrison run. But it was always one of those like titles that never caught on as, as much as a justice league or uh, any of the big solo titles, but it did, it did have impacts in the universe for a long time. Um, Niles Calder, the chief and the rest of the team are best are kind of best known as the adopted family of beast boy in the main DC universe. Um, And so there's the Titans connection there, but then gets canceled after a while. Team lies dormant for a bit. They come back. That team all gets killed off. Uh, Then a new team in the late eighties takes the stage and it's, it's not well received. The, that run, I believe written by Paul Kupperberg, um, only lasts about 18 issues. And then, and then Kupperberg is like, oh, I guess this series isn't working. So what I'll do 
is I will kill off most of that team or leave them not not doing great and then set the stage for a new writer to come in. And that's where Grant Morrison comes in. Now, Grant Morrison, one of probably my favorite comic writer, um, they known for a lot of things, um, a massive epic year, multi-year run on Batman, um, a lot of the big DC events, um, Animal Man, obviously, they were writing Animal Man at this exact same time. Another incredibly pro- prolific comic that will get covered, um, because it's, if you want more metatextual, metatextual shit than this, everyone go read Animal Man. Because this shit gets metatextual, but Animal Man gets more metatextual. I didn't realize that about uh, Animal Man. Oh my gosh, I, I, I honestly like as soon as I read that in the foreword of this, I was like, oh, I didn't. I'll have to check that out. That's neat. Animal Man has the classic like an issue ends with Buddy Baker looking directly into the reader's eyes in the panel and being like, "I can see you," and that is how an issue ends. And it is one of the most, and then it leads into, um, it leads into a conversation with Grant Morrison themselves in the comic about how like, oh, uh, my time writing you is, is almost over. Someone else is going to come in and, and you might be completely different. Who knows? And then Buddy is like, but I have a family. I have all these things. I am a real person. And it kind of broke me when I read it, gang. Um... But, again, save that for the Animal Man episode whenever that happens. But so Graham Morrison comes in and is given complete control to do whatever they want with the Doom Patrol. And they make it weird. And they make it so weird, so surreal. Um, I want to post I want to pose a conversation topic to you, Ben. We are hot off the heels of X month on this podcast, a mm. a multi-year project that will cover every era of the X-Men throughout the almost 60 years, uh, 60 years next year of comics for them. But they were created same year, literally months apart as the Doom Patrol. And there are a lot of similarities between these two teams. You have the stoic, um, paternal team leader who is in a wheelchair, uh, surrounded by a group of social outcasts with weird powers. Now, I, w- I want to talk a bit about why did the Doom Patrol falter and never get the success that the X-Men did? Because at the time... Morrison takes over um, X-Men's still number one selling comic of all time, constantly making huge creative strides, introducing new characters almost monthly, countless books, uh, just so many team members, so many mutants. And then the Doom Patrol is just struggling to make sales. And it's so and and I want to talk about like, why? What? Where do you think the X Men succeeded, where the Doom Patrol failed? Mm. You know, I the more the more I think about it, the more my mind goes to like, well, X Men, even though they were you know social outcasts, like in a pretty major way, they 
they had powers that I'm sure like kids who were telling their parents they wanted to buy comic books, like they're like, oh, that'd be a cool power. I want to look up to this person. But Doom Patrol is a lot of people who were, well, suffering. I mean, they, of course, neither team really asked for their powers, you know, but it's like, I, I'm, I'm sure like for, for many listeners and myself included, I'm like, oh, wow. Like when I was younger, it was like, oh, wow, Wolverine's got those cool claws. I bet that would be like so cool. But like, but Doom Patrol, it's like, like i'm sorry y'all <laughs> like um to be robot man just a brain stuck in a body who can't feel anything i'm like i i guess the the only reason i see there there being a possible downfall is like well nobody would really want these powers because there are such clear drawbacks even without the social consequences i think that's kind of what my i impulsively kind of think the answer to that question would be for I mean, me at least absolutely i and i i feel like there's there's that and like so much of the so many T- X-Men members could theoretically pass as human and mm. i think that's i think that's something that like yes the X-Men is a lot of like social commentary of m- different marginalized groups but when even especially during the 60s when your entire team was a group of white kids who all looked human you don't get that sense of like them being social outcasts as much as you do with the doom patrol where i feel even more so than the x-men the doom patrol is specifically an allegory for i think differently abled people or disabled people and because you get a lot of physical disabilities and physical um i'm trying to is deformities the right would deformities be like the right right word in some in some cases I think so, yes. And I, yeah. I think, especially in the case of, you know, Robot Man and Revis, like, there are literal accidents that they've been in, or big yeah, dramatic absolutely. physical changes. Yeah, Absolutely. And especially in the case of Dorothy Spinner, who we will get mm-hmm. to, um, she, again, does not look like any other child, but she is still here in the Doom Patrol, loved and accepted and cared for. And not only physical, I think, Mental illness is also a huge part of the Doom Patrol. And just the, especially like mental illness and trauma. A lot of these characters have undergone like extreme trauma and they are all recovering together, basically. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially in the case of, you know, Crazy Jane, where they specifically, um, where Cliff specifically goes into her brain and sees all the trauma, like, firsthand. Like, yes. that is such a deep dive. And if you, and I don't want to bring us on too much of a tangent, but I feel like with everything nowadays, with, like, um, like Moon Knight that had just come out, um, in terms of, like, thinking of multiple personality type um, things, I think this sheds a very different light. Um, not just, you know, Marvel versus DC, that kind of way, but, like, it portrays it in a very different way, which is interesting. Absolutely, and I think... And, well, we will sort of, let's sort of transition into meeting the characters who are the focus of this run. And we'll start with Crazy Jane. Um, real name, uh, Kay Chalice, and she has d- dissociative ident- identity disorder. Specifically, 64 different alters with, with each alter having their own metahuman ability. So, she basically has... 64 different powers power sets at her disposal and she is definitely a completely different a 
completely different wheelhouse than the Moon Knight system, where even in the comics, there are no more than three alters, three or four alters at a time. And with like Mark Spector, Stephen Grant, Jake and Jake Lockley, like that system is very much working in tandem a lot of the times. And I think like a lot of the conflict comes from them not being able to work together and the all and some and one alter sometimes taking full control while the others just sit in the back. I have not read a lot of Moon Knight comics. I am getting into the character because of the Disney Plus series. But I think you get a whole different scope when it comes to Crazy Jane. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And I think there are so many times when I mean, for um, in some cases, I know it is for plot and plot movement that it's like, well, specific um, alter comes out and helps because their powers do help in that scenario. But a lot of time, like <laughs> the my mind goes to in one instance, um, there's like um toward like after towards towards the end of um of the book one that we read um there's a moment where um baby doll is currently the altar and is just super excited to see cliff and like gives gives a big hug and says all this affectionate stuff and then a different altar which isn't specified takes over it's like was like super embarrassed like i'm so sorry like and it's just there's so much there's so much difference between every single one that have like their own motives and um, ways of doing things. I think it's so interesting. Absolutely. And um, I also feel like the art here helps, the art and the lettering especially help a lot when it comes to identifying the different alters because you have different styles of speech bubbles for whichever alter is the dominant of the system at the moment. And the And the art is constantly putting her in different poses or positions or facial expressions depending on who is the dominant alter at any given moment. And then there is a there is an issue where Cliff dives into her brain and you see all of the alters given their own unique design, which I think is incredible. They the artist could have made a lazy choice and just made them all look like Jane, but with like different different things, but you have so many different um striking different character designs i think driver 8 is uh, is my is probably the one that like sticks out to me the most like i just love that like sleek subway subway engineer design and then and then you see people like sylvia and baby doll and black anis who is the scariest of the alters when we see her in Jane's mind. And then there's that whole panel where you have all the different alters and there's just I and I do love Lady Pentecost who is just a nun with a chainsaw and <laughs> it just it and I love that the time was taken into giving each of these alters a unique character design within the system. Oh yeah, and I just looking at the the specific image that um that that uh, Jackson's talking about right now it's like it, it's so clear to I mean, of course, um, it's in what we've read so far, only a certain number of alters are kind of portrayed and brought up and actually had their powers used. But it's like looking at the picture, it's like, oh, yeah, that one's Hammerhead because he has a hammer for a head. Like, <laughs> like that makes sense. And Black yeah. Anis looks the same both inside the underground and outside. Um, so, yeah, it's that that image just helped contextualize things so much for me as a reader. Yeah. And 
there will be a content warning at the beginning of this, but Jane has a lot of trauma issues with her father, and that is personified in the underground, in her mind, as this massive kaiju that call, that is just known as Daddy. And there is a lot of abuse there, and it really shows how abuse and trauma like that, especially at a very young age, can personify itself, and it can look like that to people. It can feel like there's a monster like that coming after you. And it's just, the way it handles the trauma, I think, is a very, is a very unique take. And I think one of the first times and a comic had had done this oh yeah and i mean i think also the the way that morrison does it specifically it's like it's just so i think specifically as far as the text goes it's just so masterfully done and it's not like you know doesn't throw you into a flashback and illustrates what happens which would be a very difficult and upsetting time for almost all readers i'm sure you know but yeah um but no just the way that the text works and like the very brief like just everything with like little jigsaw pieces um that are like floating around during the just the imagery there and the text does enough to tell you what happened without making it overly graphic in any kind of excessive way so it just the way it's all handled it's like this this massive kaiju of the father but at the same time it's like oh you know what happened but you don't need to know know what happened to understand it does the it does the right thing and doesn't do anything explicit like it it allows you to imply everything from an art and writing standpoint alone. And I think it's very, it's handled very, very respectfully. Absolutely. And I, I think that's something that translated interestingly. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen the TV show, um, the, the episode where they kind of handled this and delved into the underground. But like, it was, I, I'm glad that the TV show highlighted it, um, at the very least, because it is a pretty major part of the plot, but also just because. I don't know. It's interesting to see what they take from Morrison and at the same time, just how, I don't know. It's, it's cool to see how it's imagined by different folks too. Absolutely. So moving on um, to our next member of the team, um, probably one of my favorite characters in the show and in the comic, um, Cliff Steele, um, sometimes referred to as robot man, but I think what is, what is handled nice about this, which I didn't realize until I, until I read it in, um, I have, I bought this book of intellectual essays specifically for this episode. Um, it is the, it is Timothy Callahan's collection on Grant Morrison's early years. And throughout Morrison's entire run, Cliff is never referred to as Robot Man. And I, which I think is a very respectful and interesting choice. Because Morrison is choosing to focus on the sorrow and the pain that Cliff feels in this robot body. And because he was a race car driver who got in a car accident, his brain was then put into a robot body. And that is the character's whole origin. And he feels awful. At the beginning of the story, he's checked himself into a psychiatric ward. And I have a couple of quotes here. Um... Uh, you know, they say that total amputees feel phantom pains where the limbs used to be. Well, I'm a total amputee. And I feel like that really sums up the sorrow that Cliff is feeling in this mo- in these moments where he wants to feel things again. 
and there's that that scene where he slams himself his head against a brick wall and just repeats i can't feel anything and you can see how pained he is throughout this entire story oh yeah it's it and his connection specifically with crazy jane um being something that kind of in a way i mean i know the the whole part of like the reason he was hospitalized and chose that for himself was to like you know get to a better place um with things but i think the real like rehabilitation really came in through helping crazy jane someone who um as i think it was um stated by oh what was his name um magnus um who who built him the robot body was like this is someone who needs help more than you and that's where you really saw that him like he doesn't have the physical you know tactile feeling but at the same time, he does still have a brain with emotions and, you know, metaphorically a heart. Um, so he it, it shows that, you know, he himself, like Cliff, isn't gone, even though his body isn't, which I think is just handled so beautifully by Morrison. I will mention this when we get to Dorothy, but there is a big wizard. Morrison never does anything with this, but there except for that one moment. But there is a big Wizard of Oz thing going on with, like, the main trio of, like, the field team for the Doom Patrol. And Cliff is obviously the Tin Man. It Mm. is... You can see that while the original Wizard of Oz Tin Man was lacking a heart, that is the only thing Cliff still has. Mm. He has the heart. He has that emotional strength to help people. And even more than the physical strength of his robot body, that is where his true abilities come from. Oh my God. Absolutely. I mean, without him and all of his kindness as who he was, like nobody would have been able to like go in and save crazy Jane. Cause she wouldn't have allowed anyone, you know, into the underground in the first place. Like Absolutely. if not, yeah. If, if not for his kindness and everything about him, even though he does have like, you know, a gruff exterior and he's not always the friendliest outside to like folks he isn't close with, like crazy Jane would not have been able to be saved after the, uh, and I'm sure we'll cover it in a little bit, like after everything she goes through, it kind of makes her like recede and like with, no, withdraw back into the underground. Like Cliff is the only one that Jane has ever let in just as a person. Um, and I think that if he wasn't as good of a person, or at least as kind and understanding of a person as he was, well, then crazy Jane would just be lost and it would be so much more of an awful time for the both for Jane and for the whole Doom Patrol team. Absolutely. And so we have one more member of, like, the main field team, and then we'll cover the, like, the the support team, I guess. But, um, like, the third member of the field team is Rebus. Now, fans of the Doom Patrol TV show will know Larry Trainer, a.k.a. Negative Man, as the figure wrapped in bandages with the sunglasses and the trench coat. One of the best designs in comics, mind you. I think it's just such, like... Because, like, I love the classic like invisible man universal monster horror design like i think and that is where like what this plays off of so much and i think the way it is that this this design is integrated in every time you see larry or negative man or rebus it's one of the coolest looking character designs anywhere Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I remember when the first time I saw everything with the bandages and the Doom Patrol TV show, I'm like, 
oh no this is interesting like that like of course you know uh and the, the live actions like brendan fraser robot man slash cliff steel suit was like that was super cool too i was like oh this is it's it's neat i don't know i guess i can't think of something else besides just like huh. and i mean i think that um in the comics version too with rebus especially like i there's just something about how um how more both in Morrison's portrayal and actually the, the whole illustration process throughout it's just something is just so effortlessly cool but i know rebus cares nothing about looking cool <laughs> you know that's not something rebus is worried about absolutely and um and so in this story at the beginning of it larry trainer is in the hospital treated treated being treated by a doctor dr eleanor pool and for the character's power set, they are fused with a negative spirit, which allows to do a lot of just ener- negative energy projection and things and stuff like that. But so what the negative spirit does to Larry and Eleanor is it fuses the two of them into one singular being. Now, this being is both black and white, man and woman, and all the... It, it, they the char- The character calls themselves Rebus. And, um, hold on. I have the definition of Rebus in here somewhere. Yeah, I hold know, on. Yeah, I know it was mentioned there's something, like, involving alchemy. I don't remember exactly how they described it. Yes. A term used by the medieval alchemist to identify the result of a, of a chemical wedding. So, I think with Rebus, you see a lot of duality in play. You have a, you have a being that is both man and woman, is both white and black, and touches on these things like Larry and Eleanor no longer exist. In their place is Rebus. And you see a couple of scenes where Rebus goes to um, meet with Eleanor's husband, and he is outraged. He is angry that he has lost his wife, and then... You have Cliff, who is constantly calling them Larry, even though Rebus continuously advises them to advises Cliff to that's not their that that's not their name anymore. And it's I think this might be one of the first instances of a genderqueer character like this in comics at the time. And Morrison will Morrison does this countless times uh if you look throughout their body of work there are so many trans and genderqueer characters and they do so much for queer representation and there's a character that isn't even in this part of the doom patrol run that we will talk about in the second one guys i just want to mention danny the street uh, <laughs> i everyone everyone listen to this episode and make it do good so we can do the second one at the beginning of next year and talk about Danny the street, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, Rebus is one of those very interesting and totally unique characters that I had honestly not seen before in comics or have really seen since reading this. Oh my God. Absolutely. And I- I'm so glad you mentioned the, um, the, the interaction, the scene with um, uh, Dr. Poole's husband. Because that was, I mean, that was one of the most heartbreaking scenes I've seen in, well, either in a comic or elsewhere. I mean, it was just, and especially because at that point, uh, because I know a lot of 
uh, Rebus's journey throughout is one involving like re rebuilding themselves and rebuilding, having like a human sense of senses because they've lost a lot of what it was like to be a person. And at the, it was, this was very early when they reunited with Dr. Poole's husband. And he was just so like upset and frustrated that, you know, his wife was gone and now all these changes have happened. But I know it seemed to be even more painful for him that like, um, like, they didn't even seem to care and like the part that was dr pool was just so fixated on you know the the dolls they'd been collecting rather than the actual relationship that the two of them had held like so dear for years and years and and, and the um and um dr pool's uh boyfriend is a lot of time just like recounting all these memories and like really heartfelt things that were going on and rebus could just focus on the dolls and that that just broke my heart that oh my it's goodness. watching them evolve as a human being and regaining senses of their humanity is one of the most interesting parts of this part of the run. And I, I have the second volume sitting on my shelf and I was like, Oh, I will be immediately reading this after the episode wraps because I need to know where every character goes, but especially Rebus. Now I'm going to quick run through two of these two of the other characters so we can get to like the meat of the episode but then I cuz I do want to talk about Dorothy a bit. But first off in the reserve team we have Niles Calder aka the chief who is your uh standard professor X type. Um do you have anything to say about it? He doesn't do a lot in this. He sort of he just hangs around. He's like the way I think of it he's, is he's like the less powerful Professor X who's like really cool with the president, um, but also is more of an more more arrogant at the same time, too, which I think is it's just it's interesting. I don't know. He's got the arrogance of Professor X without the yeah. powers is the thing. <laughs> it's so true. He's yeah. got he has no powers. He has got a lot of connections and brought these people together. But he spends a lot of the time in this, especially off panel and doing other things. And like he they in the beginning of the of the book, they move to a new home base. And I think what Calder is just doing is is helping facilitate the moving process. Oh, my God, literally. And, and um, towards the end, like the later parts, he's, uh, Dr. Calder was just like, Oh yeah, I gotta go. Um, since there's a new president, I gotta go. You know, uh, make sure that they're not contacting me about stuff they don't need to contact me about, and then disappears for like a good chunk of the book. And it's like, okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you have one of my one of my favorite characters. Well, I, a lot of these guys really like climbed up the ranks of my favorite characters, but especially Joshua Clay. Mm-hmm. Joshua Clay, um, originally codenamed Tempest. He was a member of one of the early Doom Patrol, like, reboots. And he has the ability to shoot beams of energy from his hands, but he barely uses them. He mostly provides medical and emotional support for the team. And I think that's such an interesting take on why a character won't use their powers. Because he has had a lot of trauma from being a superhero, and he would rather stay out of the field and help in the way he can. Oh my gosh, yeah. The, I think the whole the whole time I was reading, every time Josh appeared in the book, I was like, 
nice. Like, I don't know, Josh, he's just so sweet. Uh, but at the same time, you can tell there's a lot of pain there. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, it's always, he's always there to help, no matter what. Like, whether it's helping Dorothy and just watching and spending time on the support team with Dorothy or whatever else he's up to. Like, he is always seems like one of the people who's truly on top of it and very much together all the time. He he is a better team leader than Niles Calder, I think. Oh, yeah. I, I'll, I'll say it. Like he is one of just he he does so much for the team besides using his powers. Like you see him use his powers a couple of times, and he is a powerful guy, but he would rather help in other ways. Absolutely. Oh my god. Yeah, like the there is and I'm sure we'll we'll touch on this later. There there's a bit where it's just a little kind of mini adventure with just him and Dorothy. Um and he's just able to like blast holes in the walls or the floor or just just totally destroy a door like super easily. But he's like, that's not what I'm about. I just want to take care of Dorothy and then get back to normal. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Dorothy, uh the last yeah. member of the, of the team we have to talk about is Dorothy Spinner. Um she- I do not remember how old she is off the top of my head, but she is a young girl. Um, she was born with uh, physical birth defects that uh, exhibit ape-like, simian-like um, facial features, and she has uh, she she has been really feared and hurt by society, and she joins this little group of outcasts to help everyone become better people and work through their collective traumas and issues with themselves and under and learn to work with their various disabilities. And Dorothy's metahuman ability is she has a lot of imaginary friends and a lot of those imaginary friends project into the real world which truly leads to some of the most bizarre and gripping stories of this book. Oh my gosh, yeah. It the the first time that one of um Dorothy's imaginary friends passed out was just that giant yellow insect. I was like, "Oh god." But uh <laughs> she's just like very much like, "No, stop." Like that get like leave us alone and it just disappears. I'm like, "Wow." She's you know, she knows how to handle it, at the very least, when things are a little out of control, which is good. And because this is, this is only a single-issue story, we can sort of bring it in here and discuss it. Um, sure. The Josh and Dorothy story, where they are on their own, the rest of the Doom Patrol is dealing with something else, and Dorothy's imaginary friends go rogue. And you can see that there is a lot of trauma here with her powers and her abilities and stuff that really, again, isn't explicitly stated, but is implied that this young girl has gone through a lot of trauma and, again, uses a lot of um, fairy tale and Wizard of Oz imagery here, especially with the Red Shoes, which is the Hans Christian Andersen story where the girl fucking gets her feet cut off and the red shoes start tap dancing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was, I, I, that was kind of a, a turn I didn't expect, which I thought was, I thought that was cool. I mean, I, the aspect of like in that one little single issue story that was like, 
just her recounting all these tales that her imaginary friends told her because I mean her she didn't have like family that helped her learn it was just her imaginary friends but they the stories they told could be so dark and the fact that that became so viscerally real in a way she couldn't stop because I I was just looking back at the book and it was because of um because of the whole time their base for at least this part of the this um this selection this uh, book. Um, they're based with an old um, Justice League headquarters, and there's um, Dr. Destiny's uh, Materiopticon. Uh, one of them was left there, and that's what makes everything kind of go out of control, because that would kind of do what Dorothy can innately do because of her metahuman abilities, but we, even they would help, let someone do that even if they didn't have those, so that combined just made things go totally haywire. I think the coolest um, moment of development here is... At the end of this single issue, Dorothy has a pair of red shoes on. And Josh is like, holy shit, you put them on? You gave in to them? And Dorothy's like, no, they're not red shoes anymore. They're ruby slippers. And this is where that Wizard of Oz imagery comes in again, which doesn't get a lot done with it. But I think it's such an, like, an interesting analogy and allegory because you also have... Dorothy, who is dressed like Julie, Judy Gar- Garland throughout this entire run. She has, like, the blue and the white and the ruby slippers. And I think it's a nice little reference that I think really works. Especially how she ends the issue saying there's no place like home. She has found her home here with the Doom Patrol. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think even her, just the fact that she has her... Powers that are imagination based. I mean, that's very Wizard of Oz in terms of like the crazy, really vibrant imagery and Wizard of Oz. But at the same time, like it's just Dorothy with all of these, you know, these people who are very much like the Wizard of Oz. It's and I will be 100 percent honest. This was like this issue is very much the the one that was the most clear with the Wizard of Oz based imagery. But I the there's no place like home at the end totally went over my head and I was like oh yeah it's a sweet sentiment and just us talking about it now I'm like oh my god I'm such a fool uh, <laughs> I'm like what how, like how did I not I was thinking about the Wizard of Oz the whole time and then that didn't I don't know what happened there but Hold on. um let me find um the part in this essay collection that um mentions the Wizard of Oz oh right okay so I will read this uh quote here um, Cliff Steele, a man of metal, is obviously a standard for the Tin Man. Rebus, a hollow creature, is the stare- is the Scarecrow. And Crazy Jane, who is an emotionally damaged and withdrawn, is the Cowardly Lion. Like, you can see that that trio is being built, but, again, nothing is ever really done with it. But, I think before we, like, get into actually what goes on throughout these issues... We should talk about, like, the two biggest themes of the entire run. Um, Revision is a word that is constantly thrown around when describing this. These are all broken people trying to get better. Uh, The first storyline is literally called Crawling from the Wreckage. So, and all of these characters have undergone significant change and are working through that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that you put it in such a great way. I mean, it's throughout the, like, as soon as you, you saying that made me think initially, like, right of Rebus, like, there's so many points where they just outright stay. It's like, oh, I'm, I, they, they phrase it much better than, of course, I could, but um, something along the lines of, like, oh, we're still, like, 
rebuilding and working up to that, to like being able to do that again. And that's said the most clearly by Rebus, but of course, you know, it's constantly Cliff finding his way, first of all, out of the um to connect with Crazy Jane and get out of the institution and back onto the team. And then going forth from that, just ways to find more peace with um Cliff's condition as he is, you know, he was forced into it. Absolutely. And again, it's all about people trying to get better better together. And that collective healing is a huge part of this comic and this run. And the other biggest theme of this run by Grant Morrison is fucking weird shit happens and it's all <laughs> surreal. I'm going to list off a couple of things that happen in this third of the run alone. A priest sees a sign that says, have faith in God, but the G is sort of covered to where it looks like a C. And then it starts raining fish. The priest laughs and he gets crushed by a fridge. Um, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse tries to exit the painting that ate Paris and then comes into the real world as a hobby horse. Um, a guy calling himself Jack the Ripper tries to marry a woman in a coma. Uh, the fucking Scissormen. Um. I feel like if you listed just about anything in this entire series out of context, it it would just make no sense. And I love that about this. And I, I feel like even just you mentioning those specific things, like especially in the, the Fifth Horseman part, there's so many parts of it that make even less sense than the Fifth Horseman themselves. Like, it's insane. I didn't even talk about the giant eye in the sky that destroys everything. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's surreal. I fucking love it. Yes. Oh, my God. And I think what I appreciate the most about how Morrison deals with, like, the weirdest stuff, like, that you could think of is the fact that they also address all of the, like, oh, at least, at the very least, a lot of the philosophical underpinnings, both in, in terms of the, the one with the, uh, the Fifth Horseman, um, there was a lot of, like, specific artistic movements, but a lot of the time it's about specific literary and philosophical movements in a more broad way, which is, like, put really, really succinctly in pretty much every time it comes up. So I think it's awesome. There are a lot of influences that are that are here, and I think, ma like, big major art movements like the Surrealists and the Dadaists, those are, like, the big movements designed story-wise that Morrison and Case and Braid White and all these different artists borrow from. But then also, like... It's mentioned in the introduction of this paperback and in the essay collection how much Morrison loves surreal films, and especially um, the films of Jans Fankmeyer, who is this Czech, uh, this this Czech filmmaker. Um, I have only seen one of his films, and it is an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland that is done entirely in stop motion, um, but. It's all like household objects in a gross, dirty attic stop motion. So it's like it's all analog and it's all weird. And like like the caterpillar is represented by like a, a sock that sews itself up to when it when it becomes the caterpillar. Um, the white rabbit is, I believe, like a rabbit skeleton. It's. Guys, go watch Jans Falkmeyer's Alice if you haven't. It's 
I'm so glad that this is the episode where we've gone full into art deconstruction and <laughs> smart art theory. Uh, because we have a whole conversation waiting for us about Dada. Um, get ready. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it the entire run borrows so much from like surrealist works and Dada and different philosophical and art movements. And you can see everything being represented there while still being a human story. Oh my god, absolutely. I mean, and I'm sure, especially because you mentioned that we'll have a whole discussion about Dada coming up, it's like there's literally the brotherhood of Dada who is like the main antagonist for a good chunk of this this collection, you know? And it just, it really embraces the, and actually a theme that I kind of noticed throughout all of this is like embracing disorder and nothingness um, from a lot of the, a lot of the villains. I mean, whether it's the Scissormen, whether it's um, the cult at the very end and the brotherhood of Dada specifically, like it's just, everyone's like, they're like, whenever they're questioned about their motives, they're like, but, we're we're trying to do nothing specifically trying to do nothing and bring nothingness into the universe and make the universe nothing which is just so counterintuitive to everything that like typically you know superheroes and superhero comics or novels stand for is like saving everything whereas villains are just like nah, nothing at all <laughs> it's wild and so let's just dive into the first storyline um crawling from the wreckage um this this whole storyline like sets up the Doom Patrol, returns them back together, and the antagonists are the scariest fucking motherfuckers I've ever <laughs> seen. The Scissormen are some of the scariest creatures in comics. Ben, do you want to explain the Scissormen? Yeah, sure. Um, they made me nervous, and they um, <laughs> they they made me understand exactly what in the um in the preface and the foreword said like. Where where they were like, well, all they they in both sections they said that um yeah Doom Patrol made them nervous when they were growing up. Like I see why now because the Scissor Men were like these members of a like religious cult that worshipped um like a, a, the god between the intersection of being and non-being, and they came from this realm called um oh what was it called again? It was called Orc something Orkwith, I think Orkwith. yeah 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 the city it was of bone and also the city of miracles and there were like allegedly in the city like glass labyrinths and all these like insane surrealist stuff and it's just trying to parasitically take over reality and the scissor men themselves were just they just popped in and were cutting people out of reality with their big old scissors um <laughs> and it borrows from folklore i believe like the long mm. red-legged scissor men oh, i yeah. think because there's that other design of them in in the in one of the issues where it's like it's definitely some sort of like Eastern European folklore. Um, yeah. Hold on, I'm gonna look this up. Yeah. Oh, um, if you're looking in the book, it's on page fifty-eight. Also. Yes. Um, I'm. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look like what what folk tales are these from? Right. Yeah. Because in the in the book, it just looks like this kind of like tall slender dude with it's actually in the it's in the closer shot it's red hair but in the further away shot it's um black hair but just this green jacket huge pair of scissors and like bright red pants um and it's oh and a yellow top hat like all this stuff is just it's but the way it's portrayed in the comics is just these oh i don't even know how to describe like almost these silhouette like figures um that are just daunting and have scissors for hands like oh my goodness Okay, so, um, it is 
it is a it is it is a short story in a collection of children of German children's stories. Um, mm. The story where the scissormen come from is uh, Die Geschichte vom Damenlutzer, or the mm. story of the thumbsucker. Um, here, you want me to read the summary of of Die, Die Geschichte vom Damenlutzer? Absolutely, I'd love that. A mother warns her son Conrad not to suck his thumbs. However, when she goes out of their house, he resumes his thumb sucking until a roving tailor appears and cuts off his thumbs with giant scissors. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. I That's... think both versions are scary, but I think <laughs> Morrison's scissormen are scarier because they cut you out of reality. And that's it... horrifying. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to almost cut you off, but I was going to say, like, or in the early parts, like, they just cut people's arms off, and there was some, like, weird psychological effect before they actually came into the plane of reality, where people were just, like, um, doing, like, like, doing self-harm-based behaviors, and, like, like, there's a point where one, someone just drove their car into the side of a huge bus, and while burning, just said, the scissorman, and then died. Like, it was like, oh my god. It's just, I don't know what that psychological effect is that the scissorman have on this reality, but it was wild. It's crazy. But, um, the way the conflict here is resolved is the Doom Patrol travel to Orkwith, and they see these two priests. And it's the classic trope of, like, one of us is telling the truth while the other is always lying. But what sets up here is they're both saying the same thing. Um, hold on, what is it? Uh, oh, I'm almost, I think I'm almost there. I'm, I'm trying to flip to it, too. Let's see. Oh, too far. Um, because yeah, it was it was Rebus who I know flew up there and kind of confounded everyone and saved them all at the last second. Yes. Um. Let's see. What so, um, so oh. they they both say, "I do not know why there is something instead of nothing," and like one is saying, "I am a liar and I do not know why there is something instead of nothing," and the other saying, "I am an honest man and I do not know why there is something instead of nothing," and Rebus is able to go in and be like, "Oh, if that's the case, then you don't exist." And it comes back to the whole thing about this is Orkwith and the Scissormen are a metatextual piece within the fiction of the Doom Patrol comic. So somebody reads this book and brings Orkwith and the Scissormen into their reality. And Graham Morrison loves doing this shit. They put so much metatextual shit into their reality because they, be they believe this is a true story. They got super blasted on drugs. I can't remember what drug. And believed they encountered fifth dimensional aliens who told them that our universe is just one big comic book that they're writing. Whoa, I didn't realize that. Oh, my God. But that comes wow. up in so many of Morrison's works. Um, Final Crisis, Multiversity, all of these things are like treatises on metafiction and superheroes as gods and um Graham Morrison is so good but um moving moving on um then we get into the red jack stuff um mm. red jack is this again another extra dimensional villain who kidnaps a comatose former member of the doom patrol 
with the intent of marrying her. And Red Jack is this kooky creature um, who refers to himself as Jack the Ripper, Jack be Nimble, God at one point, uh, collects a bunch of taxidermy butterflies. It's, again, it's all so weird, but it, it allows for these philosophical conversations to happen. Oh my god, yeah. It, I Okay, I will say, if for the listeners, if you're um, hoping to read this, uh, like after we talk about it, I think the best decision I've made in a long time was because um, Red Jack at several points uh, mentions Vivaldi and the, the text like starts talking about Vivaldi. I actually listened to Vivaldi like the whole time I was reading it, and it made it such a weird and cool in, like experience. Um, and I think yeah, it was just okay. like, there was it like elevated the sophistication because it's all taking place in this huge extra dimensional manner um, of like, in this realm of suffering. And it's like the wildest time to listen to that same music while doing it. I got to do that now. Holy shit. Um, I will, I will take your word for it. The manner designs here is awesome. It's this like MC Escher meets a big cave. And it's so good. And Red Jack as a character is one of the coolest. All the villains are totally like cool designs here. You have Red Jack, who is this like mask on a like Victorian man's torso. And um, we'll get to Mr. Nobody in a second. But um, <laughs> but yeah, Red Jack is just another one of those antagonists who um, comes in, causes some shit to happen and leaves and i think that's like sort of the that is the core of the doom patrol and i think that's what so many of the previous attempts to bring them back missed is that they are a team not like the justice league not like the avengers not like the x-men where those teams handle the threats that are like huge and people pay attention to them the two, the Doom Patrol handles the weirder stuff, and um, the stuff that nobody notices. Like, yeah, you you don't see anything about like news coverage on anything, and this is a good segue into the next like story arc, the painting that ate Paris, mm-hmm. and um, it you see members of the Justice League try to deal with this stuff, but they just have no idea what's going on. It's too weird for them. Um, fun little piece of trivia that I learned from reading this collection of essays. That's the issue with the scene where Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, and Animal Man are like watch are like observing this painting. That was that issue came out the same month as the Animal Man I Can See You bit that I mentioned earlier. So Ooh. I think it's so funny that Buddy Baker is just here being like, oh Let's deal with this weird metafiction shit and then has a revelation of his own like couple of days later. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that there was like not really much news coverage until like just a little bit with the um with uh, Mr. Nobody and that. But there's just like like the police actually got involved for that one and only time. Like besides that, it's like the police are nowhere to be found. And there is no, you know, there are no um, news broadcasters or anything. It's just the world is going nuts and no one's watching. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is weird. And like, 
it's like something early on somebody met, like a government agent mentions like when it comes to stuff like this we call the doom patrol because they're the only ones that are equipped to deal with the weird shit oh yeah oh my gosh i that that is every every single thing i read after that line that was pretty early on i'm like yeah that makes sense i don't think batman would be cool with this he wouldn't know what to do <laughs> like, wouldn't handle the brotherhood of dada um no. but so let's talk about the brotherhood of dada for mm-hmm. a second um the original doom patrol had a team called the brotherhood of evil which is brought up multiple times um it's brought up multiple times and like there are people making references to it and we see a couple members of it later, but we'll get to them. Um, but they are, um, they were like your standard, like cabal of weird villains. But then one of them, um, this is a direct connection to it. There was a character involved with brotherhood of evil in the sixties called Mr. Morden, who was just, like, a scientist and some sorts of things. And this was Eric Morden, who, after tons and tons and tons of experiments, became the leader of the Brotherhood of Dada, Mr. Nobody, who, in the show and in the comics, I think is the wildest character. Mm. Um, you want to talk about a bit more about Mr. Nobody? Sure, I would be happy to. Yeah, Mr. Nobody, he's uh, kind of... I mean, it, it goes over specifically, like, he even states in, like, his whole reciting his backstory, he's like, yeah, after day one of the experiments, I kind of, I just went nuts. Because uh, <laughs> he was, yeah, as you were saying, um, Mr. Morden, but he, like, went into hiding in Paraguay with, um, I, you know, I don't know how he, how he just went about meeting a, like, Nazi scientist who's hiding away in Paraguay, but he did somehow. Uh, and he was, um, staying with him, and he seemed like, he wanted to like get back out in the world and not be recognized by um by the Brotherhood of Evil or the members who were still around from the Brotherhood of Evil. And so um the Nazi scientist was like, Yeah, we're gonna do some experiments, and he just got way the experiments had way crazy results than I think either of them anticipated. Um, where yeah, Mr. Nobody just sat in this huge void and for like three days, but felt like forever and um, I don't know exactly if it was like what he was injected with in the experiment or what like part changes physical form, but now he's just this like black shadowy figure who is described by Cliff as like and I think this is the best description I've seen of him, um, of Mr. Nobody is like when you look at him straight ahead, it looks like you're seeing him out of the corner of your eye. And I think that's that was the coolest way yeah. it was described. Yeah. And can I uh, yeah, go can for I it. offer my own description of him? Sure. Specific, specifically the face. <laughs> yeah angry clippy that's so true oh my i'm literally looking at him right now. i'm like yeah he's just he's got like a little like big claw nose if that's even a nose i don't know that's so funny it looks like it looks like you need help understanding the meaninglessness of life how can i help (laughs) oh my god i love it um but 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 there's a line here when he's explaining his origin that i want to mention um Mm. mr morden was gone wiped out like a chalk drawing on a slate I had become the spirit of the 21st century, the abstract man, the virtual man, the notional man, Herr Niemand, Mr. Nobody, which that's all you need to know about this character. He see he sees things, he realizes 
good and evil are of the past. We live in a world of unreason. Um, here's another quote from it. From this day on, we will celebrate the total absurdity of life. The gigantic hocus-pocus of existence. And that's Dada in a nutshell. Do you want to talk more about, a bit more about Dada? Sure. Oh my gosh. I, yeah, I, that is a question that I want to be asked every single day of my life because I love talking about it. Um, um, can can I, I just, can I mention yeah. something? Bef- oh. Ben, and I were, ben and I were in a theater class together at one point. Um, and I think a lot of, I think the, that it was a theater class in 2021. So we were all virtual. Um, and it was like a group discussion class. And everyone in that class sort of had their own, like, sect of theory and philosophy and various, like, elements of theater as a whole that, that they would, like, lead the discussions on. And, like, I don't remember what mine was, but I think it was very much, like, adjacent to Ben's, which every time it was possible to come up, to come up he would mention Dada. And... <laughs> it would lead to some of the best discussions in that class. I mean, I, I know, especially with theater, it just literature in general, like there is, especially like with so much literature throughout all of history, that's really based in realism and naturalism. It's like, but what if, what if not that? <laughs> like, like it's it just so anti everything you could think. Of. It's like the most, to me, it's like the coolest thought experiment and form of art because it's like, what if that's not the way it was and it was just everything except for that thing? Oh, and I, I love it. Absolutely. And I think it's like, it is a perfect philosophy for this because we are, this is an era, the late eighties to the early nineties. This is an era where a lot of the best comics and a lot of like the most critically received comics were ones that were, cemented in the real and the naturalistic. You have things like um, Batman Year One and and other things that Frank Miller had written that were so centered on the real and moving away from the absurdity of comic books, the inherent absurdity of comic books. And then you have this that revels in the absurdity and revels in... None of this could happen in the real world, and that is the best part of it. Yeah, I, you know, I think my favorite part about the fact that it's like so, this is not reality, not realism is, I, well, I, I, I guess, kind of backtracking like a little, like, I think Dada is the perfect art form for a group of villains, like with the Brotherhood of Dada, because the the reason that I'm, I mean, I'm so glad that um, that Morrison didn't go with absurdism. Is absurdism is all about you know hopelessness and meaninglessness, but Dadaism is actively a revolt against everything that's going on and against reality and realism. And I think that that sense of revolt um, and like revolution against uh, everything that is real and realism is perfect for you know the group of villains, the Brotherhood of Dada. Um, and I just I think that. It was an incredible decision that I'm so grateful that it wasn't just like, 
I mean, you know, the Joker is very good in his own right, but it's not like these aren't just people who a thing happened to them and they're just a person who does bad stuff now. No, these are like the abstract man and all these people who get like a literal fog of psychedelic gas who consumes people. Like, that's just not it's it's not what you would like expect in like, you know, a Batman or oftentimes a Superman kind of thing. Yeah, you have the fog who is able to consume people with like his power with his like mystical fog. But he is forced to hear the screams and the cries of the people he consumes. You have Sleepwalk, who whose powers only activate while she's asleep, and she doesn't remember anything that happened. You have Frenzy and the Quiz, and these, they're just so weird. And there's that bit where they're all in Paris, and they're showing off the painting to the people of Paris. And the cop is like, um, break this up, stop this. And Mr. Nobody throws a chicken at the cop, and he's like, we've taken over the world, what are you gonna do? And he's <laughs> like, you think that's funny? I'm not laughing. And then Paris gets eaten by this painting, and you are, we are then treated to multiple layers of, surreal, of surrealism and insane imagery throughout this, as the Doom Patrol, like, transcends the layers of this painting to find the brotherhood oh yeah and in every layer of the painting they're all paris it through it portrayed through a different artistic movement which i yeah. think was like such a cool approach to it like there was one that like yeah like the deepest either the deepest or one of the deepest levels was the surrealism of but one was futurism one was oh gosh what were the other ones i i know they were all they're all just so distinct stylistically that it was like there there's the one where um it's a beach and it's full of like dolly style imagery it's like it's like the candlestick floating um the big beach with like massive spheres and mountains on the horizon um you have yeah it and then you have one of them that looks like completely like a dr seuss painting some dr seuss artwork and shit and then they, the Brotherhood realizes, like, by doing this, they've unleashed the fifth horseman of the apocalypse, which is de- which in the painting is depicted as um, this massive zombified horse with, like, white voids for eyes. And, like, you see, it's a big threat. It is, like, a massive world-ending threat. And then... It, like, transcends different forms as it, like, travels through the layers of the painting. And then it leaves into reality. And Superman and the rest of the Justice League has shown up. And they're just like, what? what is this? And what I think the coolest thing about this part is, is, like, when the Fifth Horseman arrives in the real world, it's not shown for a moment what happened. But you just see, like, members of the Justice League laughing. And then it's revealed that it's just like a rocking horse. Um, and uh, Rebus has the line, um, that it's like, that's the fifth horseman? Stripped of meaning, reduced to absurdity. Neat trick. <laughs> and, like, it's, it's just shown, like... It, the Brotherhood of Dada is a threat, but you strip, you strip them of everything... They're just 
costume people just trying to cause chaos and nothingness. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's exactly all they are. And I think that's when they're actually, because the last, um, the last world before it turns, um, the horse turns into a rocking horse, um, is the world of Dadaism, uh, specifically. And the fact that they're all like, you know, they're all in this world, world of absurdity, which is ideally what their perfect world would look like. But at the same time, it's, you realize that they're not Dadaism. They are just people who like it. <laughs> it yeah, it's they, like, yeah. We are, we are not the, we are not the living embodiment of randomness and nothingness. Nothingness. We are just big fans. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty much all. I mean, they're big fans of it, and they got some cool metahuman powers. Um, yeah, it's kind of what it is. Um, they're cool though. I mean, I love them, but it's, at the same yeah. time, they're just kind of nuts. <laughs> they are some of like the best villains of oh, this, yeah. and I again, I haven't read further beyond this, but I would like, I would hope that they would come back because I think they're so fun. I do want to just talk about Mister Nobody in the show. For a second, we're not going to have the time to, like, really discuss the TV adaptation. Maybe eventually we will if we do, like, a fourth episode of this. But because it's so good. And I think so much of it comes, especially in the first season, comes from Alan Tudyk just hamming it up as Mr. Nobody. Mm-hmm. The one... There are all-star performances from every member of that cast. Um, Brendan Fraser, Timothy Dalton, Matt Bomer. Um, why can I not remember the name of the actress who plays Crazy Jane? Um, mm. Hold on, I'm looking up the cast. Yeah, go for it. I cannot think of her name either. Why? Well, I, I know what I know. She was in Encanto. I think I know she's like oh, on okay. on the rise. Um, uh, I wish I could help. I'm the worst with actors. Um, um, all I know is Brendan okay. Fraser and Alan Tudyk. <laughs> yeah. Doom Patrol cast. Um, yeah. Brendan Fraser, Matt Bowman, Diane Guerrero, um, April mm. Bowlby, Jovian Wade, Timothy Dalton. Um, the suit performers, Riley Shanahan and Matthew Zuck um, for the Negative Man and the Robot Man suit. Um, and even like the one-off. Um, wait, Flex Mentallo shows up? Yeah, yeah, towards Shit. the end. Or maybe that's maybe I did watch season two. I don't know. I know he shows up though, and that it's not a whole wild time. That was fun. Um. Okay. Well, <laughs> now I have to keep watching. Um. <laughs> we don't have time to talk about Flex Mentallo, but we will. Um. <laughs> but yeah, the cast does amazing. But I think Alan Tudyk is one of the best cast members of season one, and. I think it works so much that that first episode, he is the narrator and he is making snarky comments the entire time. And it's it gets slowly, slowly revealed that, oh, the narrator, the villain is the narrator of this story. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that that was one of my favorite parts of it. Absolutely. I mean, and just the way that. I mean, because I, I saw the show far before I really knew anything about Mr. Nobody. Like, he was my reference point. And when, when reading, like, all of Mr. Nobody's lines, I'm like, yeah, I could see Alan Tudyk saying that. He has a sense of deliver, delivery that really works for this character. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think what's really interesting is how they handle, like, his later, like, detached form. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the show, it's like, 
just various pieces of Alan Tudyk floating around. But I buy that just as much as I buy, like, black silhouette that isn't quite there. Oh, like, yeah. I, I, mean, I think both really work for the character. Absolutely. I mean, as long as it's not just, like... As long as it wasn't just Alan Tudyk looking like a human the entire time, who's just, yeah. like, a finite person, like, that I would be a little, like, mm, about, but, you know. But the fact that there was at least, at the very least, a bit of that less literal physical representation, I'm like, nice. <laughs> I I think we should move on to, like, the final, like, big arc of this part of the retrospective. Yeah, um, sure. Which is the, the, I, this might be a hot take. This is the only this is the only thing, one of the only things that I sh- think the show gets better than the comic. Mm. Um, the stuff with the decreator and the cult of the unwritten book. And I think specifically because, and I was reading in the, in um, Callahan's essays, um, in about two issues of the comic, Morrison introduces like 20 plus characters yeah. And it's like, it's a whole new story that sort of just comes out of nowhere. And like, it fits with the type of stories that have been going on. And I think Willoughby Kipling as like your main like character focus is a, is a great, he's a great character. This like guy who is totally in his own world until he has to like go get help from the Doom Patrol to deal with this shit. But like, I think the the show handles it so much more because I think it condenses a lot of it. It focuses on just like Kipling and the Decreator and the Cult of the Unwritten Book and doesn't try to include all these other characters. Yeah, I you know, I gotta agree with that. I when I was reading through it, because I, I wanted at least some of it to be pretty fresh in my brain, so I wanted to read it earlier today. And I was reading through, I'm just like I cannot keep track of all these different like factions that are part of the cult. Like there are just yeah. so many like little groups people. I'm just like, wait, so, so they're the, it's like, so it's like, they're like bounty hunters, but they're also like, like contracted by the cult and they're like agents of the cult. Like I, I, I was having trouble kind of just, dist- I don't, I mean, I don't need, if you know, if you need to distinguish, but at the same time, it just, they all seemed very um, interrelated, but also independent um that it was a little i don't know i really enjoyed it but i think it was the least distinct in terms of like a group that is thought of as the antagonist which i don't think is a bad thing necessarily but i think it's it's easier to wrap your mind around a little bit when it's like oh this is the thing that's happening this is the these are the antagonists here's what's going on you know and i think the i think the coolest part of this the d creator the giant eye in the sky that vaporizes everything barely shows up in this and you see so much more of it in in the show and like it's put focus on so much more and that is the focus rather than these different factions of the cult yeah as much as i I think as much as i think the cool church of a weird puppet priests is fun um like i I think it might be the weakest part of this run. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's still so weird and so surreal that I can't help but love it. Oh, I completely agree. Like, it, the whole time, I, you know, I, I, I gotta say, I was never bored. <laughs> uh, oh, at no yeah. point, especially not here. <laughs> and then, yeah. 
I'm sorry for rushing these, but we we've been talking oh, for, for a, we've been talking for a long time. But oh, I think it. we've we've talked we've hit everything I really want to talk about except um the last issue of the story of this mm. run this collection, the soul of a new machine. Now, in the last arc, um, Cliff got a new body, and um, it seems totally like the answer to everything he's wanted. Um, he can feel, he can smell. It's so much more advanced than before. It's like this sleek black and red body. But then, in this issue, the body itself gains sentience and ejects Cliff's brain from it. And they have a conversation. And um, the body is worried that it's going to lose its independence. Which I think is such an interesting take for this type of story, where, like, a robot gains sentience. Yeah, I... I agree. This one, I think, well, A, it was just like very much, you know, contained within itself. It was short. It was sweet. It was kind of, it was pretty funny, especially towards the end. But what really stood out to me is I think for me coming from um, a largely cognitive science background that has a lot of um, like philosophy of mind was one of my favorite courses I took um, during undergrad. And that I I actually I pulled up a little just for just to make sure I didn't get it totally wrong uh, when I was talking about it. There was um, an article that we read in, I mean, the mind uh, mind-body conflict in terms of like a philosophical, do- and I don't, I don't mean to get too into we- into the weeds with um with the philosophy behind it, but it's like the mind-body conflict and dualism is like the big one of the big philosophical questions. And there's um this whole um like uh problem uh like this mental not not mental problems. It's like a um kind of like mind game type of deal uh, by a guy named Daniel Dennett, who is this awesome philosopher and neuroscientist that is like um. There's a guy whose brain is separated from his body and is because there's something with radiation that would destroy his brain if he had to he was his body had to be used to do something for the government underground. But the question was like, where is he? Like, is he where his brain is or is he where his body and all of his senses are? And I think that that is that implemented into this story specifically. It's like, well, I mean, we know literally that is not Cliff who is the body in this sense, but Cliff as a brain fully separated from a body and then uh with the folks in the brotherhood of evil who come in a brain and a body <laughs> it's a really fun little comparison let's talk about the two two of the greatest characters in all of fiction yes. the brain and monsieur mala um <laughs> ben would you like to describe what monsieur mala looks like yeah he's a big old gorilla uh and i love him to death uh he's a gorilla he's... in a in a beret with a mm-hmm. massive gun and two giant bandoliers of ammo and he's introduced, um, he's introduced alongside the brain, who is in a baby carriage at this point, and is a brain in a jar. And the best part about it is, they're in love. Yes, I, I love the romance at the very end. I'm like, oh my god, the brain has a body and now they could be together. And The, then... brain, <laughs> the brain takes Cliff's new body. Um, mm-hmm. As the body is sort of like, he's... The body is reveling in freedom. He's going to live. He's going to enjoy everything. On and then, and then, Monsieur Mala and the brain come in, take the body, and um, and they run away. 
And that's the issue sort of ends on a cliffhanger where Cliff's new body is gone, has run off with returning old villains, and Cliff is left in the jar. It's just his brain in the jar. Oh, wait, I thought they exploded. Did they did they run away? Sorry, maybe I'm maybe I'm I misremembering. Did, so what I what I thought is that explosion leads to um I thought it was like an explosion of them like flying away. Oh, Maybe hey, well maybe that's another little cliffhanger thing. We don't know. What maybe do. we'll find out next time. But yeah, yeah, Cliff Cliff is left in the jar, asking the question: Does the body rule the mind, or does the mind rule the body? Mm-hmm. It's that is I think out of everything. I mean, I loved everything else, but I think that in terms of like a single issue that just told everything it needed to. I'm like. That was super solid. I don't know. I I loved it. I I think even more so than like the main big story arcs, the single issues that we get in this run are some of the best pieces of character development. You get one for Jane, you get one for Dorothy, and you get one for Cliff. And those might be my three favorite issues that we've read of this run so far. Um because it like it's they're all still weird and surreal, but they focus in for a second on one or two characters and offer these questions that we have to grapple with. Yeah, totally. And I think in a weird way, I would almost include the um the Brotherhood of Dada specific like big art heist issue. Um, oh yeah. There was a bit of other stuff in there too, but like actually stealing the painting that ate Paris, like everything with the like the background of the painting, and then them just having their own kind of crazy evil heist with this really eclectic uh, collector dude. Um, I thought that was really interesting as a standalone kind of deal too. Yeah, this but, is. Yeah. We are in that era of comics where like it's transitioning away from a single issue done in one stories to like big multi part arcs. And I think this is sort of like the best balance of it because all of the single issue stories do like lead to payoffs later down the line, but they are their own self-contained thing and everything sort of just flows into each other. And it's, it's not like, Oh, this is disappointing because this this ends on a cliffhanger. No, it all just flows into each other. Right. There's never a single, like, individual one-issue story that feels unnecessary or excessive. Like, it's always like, that. that's how it needed to be, and now, now we get back to the whole big multiple-issue thing. It's like, we needed to see the underground stuff and the Jane to figure out her recovery process, um, and then we can move on with the whole larger universe-ending kinds of stories. It allows it to breathe. I think it offers yeah. that breathing room. Yeah, so that was the first part of Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. Uh, final thoughts, Ben? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to think thoughts besides I loved it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was just so wild and exciting. And the whole time I was like, there were times where I was like trying to wrap my mind around things. But once I finally thought I got it, it was just, it just kept getting crazier, <laughs> which was fantastic. Yeah, I think like, I wish we could have commented more on the art besides, like, it's surreal, it's weird, but it's, like, 
I also feel like it's very, it's rough when it needs to be rough, and it's sleek when it needs to be sleek, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. No, I, that was a perfect way to say it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are definitely parts where <laughs> there was one um one thing that I think was the only time art-wise where I was like, this is the simplest thing, and I think it works, <laughs> was um Mr. Nobody in his, like, big suit just sitting in the void. It was just, like, very simple shapes. I'm like, that's nice. I like that. But then there was just... such, like, complex, high-definition stuff, too. It's so much is going on in this, and, you know, I like... I. At the end, at the end of the first episode, actually doing it, I like this format. I like taking the time to sort of like split things up. Um, we will come back to this. This is a story that we are both reading as we are exploring it, as we're covering it, and I hope you'll continue to join us. Um, ben, thank you for being the guest on the most, probably the most intellectual episode we've ever recorded. <laughs> Well, thank you for inviting me. I mean, this has been so much fun, and I love talking about this stuff, so thank yeah. you. Um, um, obviously, we'll have you back eventually. This is great. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. And remember, um, we come into this world unknown, but know that we are not alone. They try to knock us down, but change is coming. It's our time now. Then it... Did people get that reference? Um, it's the Kelly Clarkson song that Larry sings in in the one Doom Patrol episode. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, you're, you're so right. Oh my <laughs> Good, goodbye, everybody. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman's theme music was written by Charlotte Rosenthal. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman is produced by Mythonomica Productions. Thank you for listening.